Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast where we prod the sheep and beat the wolf. This is episode 94, an interview with Michael Foster. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to a special episode of the podcast where we're getting to sit down with some great men of God, and we're getting to hear a practical view of what postmillennialism is. You'll remember that's what our series has been all about, is understanding what postmillennialism is practically. And today is my pleasure to invite my friend, my brother in the CREC, a guy that I've enjoyed getting to know, uh, my friend Michael Foster to the show. Michael, how are you, man? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on. Really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely, man. Hey, for those of uh, who are watching, maybe who don't know who you are, don't know the the things that you're passionate about, you're working on, where you're from, where you minister, all of that, man, help us know who is Michael Foster. Um, well, I um, just kind of a quick overview. I became a Christian in my late teens. I come from a non-Christian family, and uh, then met my now wife. Why I was teaching kind of community Bible studies. I was involved in these huge youth Bible studies and skateboard ministry. And then Em and I got married and we've had uh, eight kids. One one is in heaven and another one's on the way. So it'll actually be nine kids that we've had together. It's pretty bonkers. So <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Christian, I'm a husband, I'm a father. Uh, then I've also, uh, I write quite a bit. So I'm an author. I published a book called It's Good to Be a Man and got two other books that I hope to have published this year. And uh, that'll be great. And uh, that was a ministry. It's good to be a man. It was like a project that me and my friend, uh, non-tenant, did to to help, in particular, young men, but just men in general, kind of wrap their head around uh, the the destruction of kind of biblical sexuality that that's happened in the last couple centuries and and how to reclaim their manhood and not feel ashamed about it but be uh godly virtuous masculine men so i've written quite a bit on that i think that's probably from a public platform what i'm known for more than anything uh but um but my real passion is the church i love uh being a pastor i love planting churches i've planted uh two churches directly and and have helped plant two others and so East River is where I serve as a pastor, which is here just outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. And um, yeah, God, God's been really good. That's the sort of stuff I'm caught up with at any given time. That's awesome. Um, I don't know if everybody knows this or not, but your documentary that you did on It's Good to Be a Man is oh, can be found right. on Canon Plus, which is excellent. I uh, We had a men's group get together and watch it. It's fantastic. So I would totally commend that to you. Also, You've got This is Foster, new podcast that you've been doing, which has been oh, yeah. uh, really good yeah. as well. Yeah, so um, that's uh, that's going to pick up to get back up to three episodes a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Uh, but that, I really just focus on kind of practical theology uh, with an eye towards men, uh, fathers and sons in particular. Mm-hmm. So it's usually pretty short episodes that focus on some topic with a, a goal of just giving you something the goal is that you walk away being able to take some sort of action, right? Yeah. Well, that's a wonderful segue, Michael. Uh, practical theology. We want to make eschatology practical. Um, you and I have been in the church for a while. I've been, uh, whether volunteering or part-time or full-time in ministry now for like 12 years. And one of the most avoided topics in theology 
is eschatology. You you hear many folks who will say, "Well, I'm a pan millennialist. I'm gonna. I hope it's all gonna pan out in the end." And then you've got, especially in this country, some of the uh, dispensational, premillennial, left behind sort of eschatology that leads to a lot of defeatism and pessimism. So, um, for many, eschatology is scary. It's about how the world's going to continue to get worse and worse and worse. But um, we have a different view on this show. You have a different view. I wanted to just ask right off the bat, what is your view and how would you sort of very simply define it as a practical theology? Yeah, so I am a postmillennialist, but I am not as as maybe intense as some. That's that's usually where I am on most things. <laughs> so I uh, became a Christian in dispensational churches. That's the majority of America these days, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you're non-denom, Baptist, or uh, any form of charismatic. And I uh, I was in the Calvary Chapel movement for a long time. The Calvary Chapel movement is quite like especially during the 90s, uh, preoccupied with eschatology, I would say. They talked about it a whole lot. And really looking forward to the rapture. Um, Chuck Smith had even predicted it several times, only to be wrong. I think 1981 was one of those times. Mm. But um, so they talked about it a whole lot. And I uh, I, I had an interest in it because the men I looked up to had an interest in it. But it, it got confusing. Like when you'd read, like I'd read Revelation, um, the, the sort of hermeneutic they would use was all over the place. And it's mm-hmm. like, why, why does, why do we start interpreting it literally here, but metaphorical there? And, you know, that sort of stuff would really uh, throw me for a loop. But I remember I was at Chuck Smith's church. I was like 20 something, 21, something like that. And it was the evening service and he was going through the book of Matthew and he gets to Matthew 24 and Chuck's a weird dude in that sometimes he sounds like a Calvinist, sometimes like Arminian. You know, Chuck would contradict himself all the time and be kind of okay with it. But he made some sort of side comment that the people that are being taken away in the flood were being taken away in a flood of judgment. And the people being left behind were the ones that were not being judged. And it was like a weird moment where Chuck was inconsistent, but I was like, wait a second. Uh, What does that mean? Um, And uh, so then that I looked at that and I said, well, that kind of really blows away, starts blowing away part of the rapture theology. Mm. And I started to look at the, the, the proof text on, on rapture theology and started to realize that the vast majority of them were referring to something else, almost always the second coming, right? Mm-hmm. And so then I did what a lot of people do who have been in like heavily eschatologically um, preoccupied churches, especially the dispensational sort, sort where you have all these charts and it's super complicated. <laughs> um, I became an amillennialist. Now, I tell everyone that amillennialism is theology or eschatology for people who don't like eschatology. You kind of had it, <laughs> right? And um, but amillennialism is right it, because basically, right? A millennium. The, the question is, when does the millennium happen? Right? Is it before the second coming of Christ? Is it after? Is it leading up to it? You know, is it is it symbolic? And, and of course, the thousand years has to be symbolic. 
Um, a thousand, every time it's used in scripture, is, is, is used in a figurative way, right? It's like cattle on a thousand hills. God actually has more than that. Better is one day in your course than a thousand elsewhere. What, what a thousand and one is not. Um, right. So a thousand is like when you're a little kid and you say, you know, a gazillion, right? A bazillion. It's just a huge expanse of time. And um, so amillennialism kind of made it all a sort of heavenly spiritual drama, this sort of figurative metaphor that applies to every age. Problem I started running into is when I looked at apocalyptic uh, books and sections of scripture, uh, these things always tend to correspond to actual historical events. Hmm. And I slowly realized that actually pre-mill or post-mill was about the only way you could go because they locate uh, this stuff in actual history. And there's no way right. to look at the passages uh, as an honest exegete, in my opinion, and, and arrive at a almost purely spiritual or figurative or metaphorical sort of conclusion. These are things that actually happen in one way or another. Um, and, and so pre-mills and post-mills both agree. These are things that happen in history. The question is when do they happen in history? What order are the events and all that? So that's started to put me, make me at odds with amillennialism. So I think it was probably around 2013 or so. Uh, that's when I switched to being a paedo Baptist. Might have been a little earlier than that. And to post-millennialist at the same time. And it was largely through the writings of Ken Gentry. Mm. I found him to be really helpful. Like, um, uh, all his is he had postmillennialism today. I think it's been renamed to something else, which is a website. But uh, he also uh, there's a like three or four views book that he contributed to that was helpful. And so I, I became a postmillennialist uh, that way. This kind of a slow, um, slow march. And I think in terms of practical consequences, a postmillennialism for me is it delivered me from being obsessed with the news. Mm. Now, the fact that news is almost entirely propaganda and lies certainly helped me be fully delivered. Um, <laughs> but when you're a premillennialist, you're always kind of obsessed with what's happening, and you treat the news like, oh, this is exactly what the Bible talked about. Look how many earthquakes there are, right? There's so yeah. many wars and rumors of war. And uh, do you think the European Union is you know, the one, you know, the one world government? You know, And, right. and you're always, like, really caught Pasha up Wong. with that. Yeah, right? And who's the Antichrist? And I think uh, when I realized that history moves in really huge increments, like God moves not like – day by day, the way we tend to think about it, but decades and centuries these things happen. Um, things like that um, uh, really change the way you, you you think about that stuff. And it delivers you from a sort of anxiety. And what I would say is one of the great weaknesses of dispensationalism and premillennialism from a sort of pastoral psychological perspective is that the people tend to be very anxious people. They tend to worry a whole lot. I mean, you and I, you're, you're, I'm 43. How old are you? 40. 
40. So we're in the same sort of bracket. You, we were around for Y2K, right? People yeah. were freaking out during Y2K. And I had a friend who um, was influenced by this guy, Monty Duda. I don't know if he's still around, but it was like some sort of weird pre-mill Messianic Jew thing going on. And my friend actually uh, built out his entire um, farm and got all this food and, and, and on Y2K locked himself down in like a bomb shelter sort of thing with his family. Very normal guy, very smart guy otherwise, yeah. but it just got, it all got into his head. And I, uh, so I, I was out with my wife. We were dating on Y2K and nothing happened. Um, and I called this friend up the next morning. He didn't answer his phone. And I was like, so, uh, you got some livestock for sale and, you know, um, <laughs> and, uh, he was actually really kind of broken. He was waiting for the world to fall apart. And it's like dispensationalism gives people permission to worry and be uptight. And and, uh, and as a, a post-monialist, I know that bad things are going to happen. I do think amonials and post-monialists can have very similar mindsets mm -hmm. because on the ground, it it can almost be the same. Right. Like God, the church is going to have the victory. God's going to have the victory. Bad things can happen. There's good periods, bad periods. But as a post millennialist, I'm, I'm not really stressed out about the news or anything. I know the church is going to win. I know that Rome is dust. I know that Egypt is dust. I know that the church is covering the whole world. Yeah. Um, I know America could rise, fall, rise again, whatever. The church is going to keep on going. Bad things are going to happen. But, but in the scheme of things, there's a sort of upward movement towards seeing the kingdom of God spread across the world. And so I just kind of put my hand to the plow where I'm at. And I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't follow the news. I don't care about blood moons. I don't care about any of that stuff. You know, so. it's so important what you're saying, Michael. Um, so many things uh, we could jump in on there. But why do you think um, a view of church history is so important when it comes to this? Uh, because what you're saying is God moves in centuries and millenniums. Uh, why is it so important for us to have at least a basic view of church history when it comes to even our outlook on where the world is heading? Yeah, it changes a whole lot. Um, it so like one big way is that the way God affects things is small and incremental, and it grows and gets bigger and bigger. Right? Mm. That was true of just you just go through a list of all sorts of things in Scripture where where it's like that, and I think that is helpful for those of us that are. Uh, reformed minded not reformed in theology but wanting to see institutions and movements reformed mm -hmm. and so there's a revolutionary impulse that wants to kind of burn down institutions and build back up from the ground as if that's like an easy thing to do it's it's not you know you should never you should always try to work where you're at as long as you can until you realize like hey this this is unreformable mm -hmm. and you know wilson does a pretty good job in rules of reformers of laying out that sort of mindset but when you look at uh, like false doctrines, um, the Christological heresies and, and Trinitarian heresies, uh, that was really worked out by the church over centuries, right? You know, when you look at the ecumenical councils and all that sort of stuff, that that didn't happen overnight. It's pretty wild how people try to resolve 
a lot of things like this week or in a month or, you know, and they talk about like, as if these are things, well, like, well, they worked it out in the early church. Yes. Over the greatest minds over decades, if not centuries. And so I think when you start to think of reformation happening over long periods of time, again, you, you, you take the wins you can get where you're at. And, you know, there are, there are times where you plod and you only gain inches. It's like in football, think about where sometimes you're just getting a couple yards, your running back pushes the line a little forward. I, I used to I was used to be a Bengals fan. I don't fall football anymore. But I always hated Jerome Bettis who played for the Steelers because he just would fall forward and get four or five yards, right? Yeah. Sometimes the like change works like that, where it's four or five yards. Other times the line breaks open and a dude runs all the way down the field, right? And yeah. these like huge changes happen like quickly. So the Great Awakening would be an example. 2020 is probably going to end up being one of those historical uh, breaks in the line, so to speak. So when you start thinking about history in that sort of herky-jerky, incremental, slow, but upward promising changes, like the like I treat postmillennialism like I treat cessationism, which is there. It's undeniable if you look at history. Like for example, with cessationism, so the the ceasing of the of the the, the power gifts, the sign gifts in the first century, they ceased. We know they ceased because Chrysostom uh, and I think even Augustine. Like just a few centuries later, like, yeah, this part of Corinthians is hard to understand because we don't see this anymore, right? And that's why these guys have to say there's this latter rain when the gifts came back. Well, wait a second. The gifts, so you are conceding that the gifts left, right? So when you look at church history, did things get worse and worse or have they gotten better and better? Numerically speaking, there are more Christians than ever before. Numerically right. speaking, there are more churches than ever before. Right now, the West is certainly in a gully, in a, in a downtime, in a pretty dark one. Uh, but uh, a Christian worldview is uh, has gained ground globally in a undeniable way over the last couple thousands of years. And so you start to look at church history and look at this stuff, it changes the whole way you think about everything. And I don't think about things in days and weeks and years, like when I'm doing Reformation. Right. Uh, what a helpful thing. And uh, just the sort of plod of everyday faithfulness and and – you know, I I heard an analogy one time of a, a father and son. The father worked his entire life on building one corner of a cathedral, and he handed his hammer and he handed his uh, his tools off to his son, and never got to see the cathedral finished. His son probably never mm -hmm. did either. But just that faithful building um, over generations of time, and and just that's so helpful because we live in that microwave sort of culture where we want to fix yeah. everything today. Uh, Michael, why do you believe? Now that post-millennialism is starting to, I feel like it's starting to get a little bit of a resurgence. You've got guys like R.C. Sproul and Ken Gentry, Lorraine Bettner, Doug Wilson in the former generation who, who really started bringing what was kind of starting to become a dead view back. And then now you've got guys like yourself, uh, me in our church, you've got um, Joel Webin and, and some other guys who are really trying to, as young men, bring this view back out. You got apology at church. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. why is this sort of feeling like it's resurging now at this particular time? Uh, well, it could be part of it could be just wanting to have a 
coherent, consistent worldview uh, where we're, we're the beneficiaries of kind of that broad apologetic that you can trace to like guys like Francis Schaeffer or whatever. Those now we are thinking about things like government, like history, like change, like all that, all that sort of big picture stuff where we're moving out of that sort of evangelical. So the even, so you have even being evangelical is a good thing if we mean that we believe that faith is necessary for conversion. Okay. Right. But when we talk about evangelicalism, we're talking about the movement that came from the 1930s and 40s as a response. It's kind of like a, a parallel movement with fundamentalism. And it was a mm-hmm. response to the liberalism coming in through the mainline. So evangelicals were all about, um, you know, uh, kind of street preaching or like big conversion sort of uh, stuff like Billy Graham. Think of that. Uh, but it got mixed up with youth culture and, and being cool and mere Christianity and all that. And it ended up becoming very like centered on the in- individual and, and therefore narcissistic. Like you don't have to have church. You can have church yourself. It's just you and your Bible. So that sort of just me and the Bible, uh, individualistic Christianity led to incredible compromise that blew up from the 80s on to now. And, uh, and so sometimes people online talk about it as like Big Eva or whatever, like Big Pharma, Big Eva. Um, so I think the failure of that individualistic, Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior, but it has no consequences outside of me, <laughs> made people start to say, like, I want a, a more corporate, comprehensive, faith in view and then you have kind of the apologetics movement that's willing to speak to all these different ethical and theological issues all that's kind of coalesced and people are saying all right what does scripture say about these things and and that's where you start to really consider uh the work of the church throughout history right and that gets you to eschatology really quick so i think eschatology is something we've needed reformation on i do think ecclesiology maybe uh even like eschatology ecclesiology and anthropology all have been under attack or been uh kind of emaciated doctrines in the church and uh because it's like it's very simple you can get to um post-millennial convictions just through a good uh, ecclesiology. All right, the church is the body of Christ. All right, so who is the head of the church? That's Jesus. All right, so the church is ultimately the Jesus working in the world through the church. It's his body. Like the church isn't headless. It's it's got a body. So will Jesus have the victory in the world yeah. will the body of christ the bo- jesus will it, will he win yes he always wins that's all all he does Praise God. um so the and the church has been given this mission and uh oh will the church fail well yeah if it was by itself but it's not it was given the whole mm-hmm. the holy spirit god the third person of the godhead uh is is the holy does the holy spirit uh fail now the holy spirit does whatever he wants um, he's going to get it done. And so when you, I think I backed into postmillennialism probably through my growing Presbyterian sort of convictions and, and the way I thought of the church. Um, and so I think that's what's going on. I think people are wanting something that connects to all of life. And so when you have something like all of Christ for all of life, that sort of saying that you see coming out of Moscow, 
that was the right thing at the right time because people are like, yes, I want to be a Christian everywhere in every way. Yeah. Yeah. It seems just as you were discussing that, um, not only did the sort of defeatism that, that has pushed Christianity, I, I would say, in, into hiding for the last couple decades, but that hyper-individualism, I hadn't really connected that, uh, that, that the um, Billy Graham, Big Eva, all of that stuff has, has sort of done. So it's sort of a two-fold attack that has caused yeah. Christianity to be impotent. And when we're not salt, the world decays. When we're not light, the world grows in darkness. I mean, that mm. makes really good sense actually of why we why we've inherited the world that we've inherited um yeah so that's really good man um with the time we've got left it looks like we've got five or six minutes left man sketch out as a pastor as a guy who's been thinking about this for a while uh somebody who uh is doing things in the kingdom um man help me and help us understand how having a post-millennial underpinning to our theology actually helps us faithfully engage in culture and maybe talk about that um not theologically but from a practical how how are you doing it how are you encouraging people in their manhood or womanhood in their marriages in their family i mean brother you're a post-millennial guy with with eight kids and one on the way and one and i mean brother um help us understand practically how this affects every aspect of our life and what we can be doing right now so when we planted East River, I came up with a vision. So vision is a mental picture of a task completed. Hmm. I came up with a vision that was so big that I could not complete it. It was my goal. Hmm. Um, I think the problem with modern churches is that they're built on uh, personalities, which is, I think, kind of natural. God works through certain types of people. But uh, but they become so tied to that person that when that guy dies or whatever happens, the church is, like, messed up. And I wanted a vision of church that was intergenerational. And so I think um, what's interesting to me, if I could, I'll get something really edgy for a moment. So part of the problem with, like, take a guy like Keynes, um, the economist, um, we know from his journals that he was a bisexual, if not a homosexual. And his entire way that he built his view of, econ of economics is really not about the future generations. Because as a homosexual, he really just, that's not, that's <laughs> not, that's a, that's a weak point uh, is, uh, with homosexuals. Um, that's why they have to steal, try to steal our kids. Um, yeah. So it's interesting to me, dispensationalism, since it's about, let's go, let's go, let's get out of here, man. Like Jesus is going to come down and bungee cord out of heaven, grab us and go right back up. Um, let's go. And I don't think about that way. I mm. think like, hey, I want this church to be here centuries from now, Lord willing. And so even from a church vision standpoint, we're building a church that will look very different once it's completed and we might you know uh, i think about uh this type of beech tree that if you plant it when you're born it doesn't reach full maturity like until like 80 100 years right uh, wow. or actually 140 years it's 140 years and so if you plant it like in your 20s or 30s your grandchildren will see it fully mature with dim eyes wow. i like that i like that idea i like that it's a cathedral mindset where cathedrals are started by one generation and finished by the next or the one after. So post uh 
allows for you to think generationally because you're not like, hey, it's all going to burn. We're all, we're all going to be leaving any moment now, man. Like, uh, it's, it's the end times. It's the last days, like, you know, where we think like, well, I don't know. Jesus come back whenever he wants. Um, but this, we could still be in early church. I don't know. This could be mid church. It's so hard to say where we're at. Um, and so let's just build like it's going to be another thousand years. You know, maybe we, maybe we do send missionaries to Mars. I, I have no clue what's going to happen. Um, and so practically it, it makes you think from generation to generation. I like to think about my, at least my grandchildren is a, a focus of mine. And so practically it helps you. Uh, a man and woman think about building a intergenerational household, mm. I would say. Uh, and then the same thing with the church, an intergenerational church. I think that's one of the main benefits of postmillennialism. Like if you read, it's good to be a man or read a lot of our stuff. I don't, I'm not big on labels. Uh, I'll use them when I think they're helpful and clarifying. But people get like up in arms and dig their feet in when you say a label. Uh, it, but if you if you communicate what it means, you'll find a lot of people like it. And uh, so, and it's good to be man. We never say post millennialism. I don't think we ever say theonomy. But you'll feel post millennialism through it, the positive sort of like building. And so, I think post millennialism encourages activity, action building because we know the church will have success it has had success and it will uh have a, a ultimate success by the right. end of the age when jesus comes back and and consummates all that he's been doing in the world yeah i think about uh the parable of the talents when it comes to yeah. this um <laughs> the uh the one who buried his his coin in the sand is, is sort of the modern day either dispensational or radical two kingdom millennial uh who's just waiting on you know, Jesus to bungee cord us out of here. I call it Wonka Vader, uh, to Wonka Vader us out of here. Uh, but it's really the ones who get to work and who are building. And we can all do that. This, it's not just pastors. It, all of us can be doing that in our lives. And, and really, honestly, it's pretty basic things. It's not, we don't go out and have to swing for the fences every single time we get up to the plate, right? Uh, if I lead my family and family worship, teach my children how to know who God is and, and equip them to be able to pass that on to my grandchildren. That is an incredible way to, to see the kingdom of God build. And it's within God developed it in such a way to where everybody could get involved in every level. And man, I'm so encouraged by the way you're talking about it and, and bringing it down so that we can understand it because it, it's so useful, so helpful. And it's what's needed right now in the church. Amen. Awesome. Brother, where can we find you? What are you working on? What are you passionate about? Tell us uh, where you're at right now. Uh, I'm most active on Twitter. This is Foster. Uh, I've got that podcast that's rolling out. Um, I've got, uh, I'm going to finish this book I've been working on forever uh, <laughs> called Surviving the Death of a Child. Uh, so that, that'll be done this year. And then I have another book called, probably called Holy Ambition coming out sometime this this year as well uh and uh that that's mostly done right now uh so yeah those are the things those books are i'm working on and then just hunker down here in batavia helping church planners plant biblical you know faithful churches amen brother so thankful to have you on today so thankful for you as a friend and uh thank you look forward to seeing you i won't be seeing you at augustine anymore we've broken uh, yeah <laughs> we've broken Loser, away man. yeah yeah but hopefully I'll yeah. see you uh, again next council or uh, whenever you're on uh, your speaking engagements, we'll come out and support you, brother. 
Uh, Thanks so much. God bless. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the podcast. This show is made entirely possible by your support. So we thank you so much for that. Also, if you'd like to support the show further, you can click like or subscribe or click the bell icon so that you never miss out when new content is delivered. Also, go and check out Michael Foster. He's on Twitter. He's on Facebook. He's on various social media platforms. He's got podcasts. He's got documentaries and he's got books. Check him out and support him. He's got some great content that is sure to enrich your faith. Until next time, God richly bless you. And we'll see you next time on the broadcast.